Romans 1, 20. Let me read that verse again. The invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. You know what we have in this verse? Is we call it these days an oxymoron. You know, you know what an oxymoron is? It's not a moron that's built like an ox, though uh, some may fit that definition. But it means, it, it, Webster says it's a combination of contradictory or incongruous words. Things that don't seem to go together. For example, here's, here are examples of them. Have you ever heard of cruel kindness? Have you ever had anyone ask you to act naturally? <laughs> How about somebody who's been found missing? Or are you alone together? My wife and I dated that way. We were alone together. You, you could say something is awfully pretty or something is pretty awful. <laughs> but both are oxymorons. And my favorite one, go to the restaurant and order jumbo shrimp. That's an oxymoron. The two things don't really go together. Virtual reality. You're a big baby. A short weight. A least favorite. All of those are oxymorons, things that two words that really don't fit together. You know, we have such statements in the Scripture often. I keep a list of them in the back of my Bible. But, for example, Ephesians 3.19, We are to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. How can we know something that passes knowledge? Or Hebrews 4.11, let us labor therefore to enter into rest. Let's work hard to enter into rest. Or 2 Corinthians 4.18, we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. We look at the things that are not seen. Well, here in our text in, in 120, we are told that... Uh, that the invisible God is clearly seen. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you think about it. How can the invisible God be clearly seen? Well, Paul is going to explain clearly seen by the things that he made. You know, our life has a lot of contradictions in it that people point out today. How can God exist if we can't see him? How do we know something exists that you can't see? God is good, but evil things happen in the world. And if God is good, why does evil happen? And why do evil people prosper and good people suffer often? Why do we have that? Why is it that sometimes a person can tell a lie and it helps them, and another person can tell the truth and it hurts them? Why do we have these kinds of contradictions uh, going on in the world? Well, my answer would be, welcome to Romans 1 through 8. <laughs> because in the Bible, in Romans 1 through 8, Paul is basically giving God's explanation of why the world is the way it is. Why we have contradictions at all. And to me, you can't understand this world without understanding the brokenness of the world that goes with it. And the explanation that the Bible has for sin and how sin came into this world and why, though, there's this a beautiful uh, creation made by a holy and just God, why do we have these seeming contradictions going on? I don't know about you, but I enjoy looking at the things God has made. I, I enjoy creation. Uh, you know, uh, you always know 
what a person thinks by what stores they like to go to. What's your favorite store? I, go, I went down to Atlanta this week, and my son-in-law, you know, who loves his guns and, and uh, his dad is a fly fisherman uh, extraordinaire, and uh, if we go to the store to do something, you know where we go? We go to Cabela's, of course. You know, do the girls go with us? No, they don't want to do that, except maybe to see the fish in the aquarium. But, uh, you know, Bass Pro, uh, REI, those kind of stores uh, show you what kind of, what kind of things that you like. And I like those kind of stores. I like winter. I don't know about you, but I like, I kind of miss not having too much snow this year. I like it when it gets white and I like the, the snow covered trees and that kind of thing. But I'm going to enjoy the first uh, hour of spring tomorrow morning too, because I'm going to watch it come in. So summer's coming and you're going to be involved again, and maybe you like hiking and fishing and hunting. I don't know. You're going to like lawn mowing again, whether uh, you uh, like it or not, and maybe gardening. Maybe you're a gardener. But in all of these things, we should not and must not forget who is behind all of this, and that is the God of all creation and the one who created the world like this. So I want to talk to you about that three things from this verse that you see in Romans 1.20, and you have these in your bulletin if you want to follow it. First of all, let's talk about the, the invisible things of God. The invisible things of Him are clearly seen, are they? What, what does it mean when we talk about the invisible things of God? Well, first of all, let me remind you that the Bible often declares that God is the creator of the world. As a matter of fact, he created the world through Jesus Christ, the second person of the Godhead. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. And Colossians 1, 15, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, by him all things consist." The Bible is, is uh, unified in its message that God is the creator of all things through Jesus Christ. And then things of God are seen in this creation. Hebrews 1.3, for example, says, who being the brightness, this is speaking of Christ, is the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power. Or Psalm 19.1, which we know well, uh, which says, the heavens declare what? The glory of God. The firmament showeth his handiwork. We see things about God in the things that he has made. Isaiah even said in Isaiah 40, 25, to whom will you liken me? Or shall I be equal? Saith the Holy One, lift up your eyes on high and behold who hath created these things. Look into the sky that bringeth out their hosts, meaning the stars, by number. He calleth them all by names, by the greatness of his might, for he is strong in power, not one faileth. And I'll come back to that idea about the stars in just a minute. So the, the, in the, the things of God are seen in the creation. The Bible tells us that often. Now, uh, when Gordon read to us a minute ago, 
the translation used the word attributes, which is, which is a good description because theologians call the invisible things of God his attributes. As a matter of fact, if you collected everything that is said in all of those books, they'll list over 40 different things that are attributes of God, 40 different attributes that we could identify. God is this, God is that. Now, all of these attributes, they, they divide into categories, you might say, but there are two main categories. One category is something you and I can relate to, and another category is one that we just can't relate to. So we call the one moral attributes and the one non-moral, meaning we don't have any connection to them. Some call them communicable and uncommunicable. So a moral attribute, for example, is God is holy, God is love, God is truthful. You and I can relate to that. Not that we can be as holy as God or love as much as God or be as truthful as God, but he's the standard. And we can try to attain these, and we're commanded to. So God is holy, God is love, God is truthful, God is just, God is merciful, God is compassionate, comforting, God is powerful. All of these kinds of things you and I can relate to, and the list of attributes like that goes on and on. You're supposed to try to be holy. You can't be as holy as God is, but you can try. You're supposed to love. You're supposed to have mercy and have compassion and all of those kinds of things, those we can relate to. Then there are those attributes of God which are his and his alone because we just don't possess anything like that. For example, God is eternal. I, I can't quite relate to eternity myself. Isaiah says, Thus saith the high and lofty one who inhabiteth eternity. How can someone inhabit eternity? That's where he lives. That's what he is. You and I can't quite comprehend that. And being finite creatures like we are, we can't quite understand that totally. God is immutable, meaning God does not change. I don't know about you, but I change my mind every day. <laughs> and I change every day. But God never changes. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is immaterial. That is, God is a spirit. Jesus said, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And yet, you and I are physical. We have a spirit, but it can't be separated from our physical until death. And so, how do we understand somebody who is, is a spirit like that? And then, God is invisible, of course. You and I can't see him. As a matter of fact, the Bible says, if you could see God, it would kill you in an instant because you couldn't take it. How do we understand somebody like that? Then there are those words, the omni words, you remember? He's omnipotent, he's omnipresent, he's omniscient. Let me remind you of those because we, we can kind of grasp that even though we're nothing like this. God is omnipotent. God is all-powerful. Again, Hebrews 1 says, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, upholding all things by the word of his power. Colossians 1.17, he is before all things, by him all things consist. Is there any question of the fact that God is all-powerful? All power is given unto me in heaven and earth, Jesus said. And so he is all-powerful. You and I are not. We have power over a few things. We can do a few things with our power. God is omnipowerful, omnipotent. He's also omnipresent. He is here with us today. He is everywhere you might go. Remember, David said in Psalm 139, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? 
Whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. I can't go anywhere where God is not. Being omnipresent is something that I don't quite understand, but God does. And then God is omniscient. God is all-knowing. This ought to scare us a little bit because God knows our thoughts. God knows our every action. God knows what's in our heart. These things are true because God is God. Do you pray to the Lord and sometimes pray silently? How can God understand your, and hear your prayer? Because you know that he is omniscient, that he knows even your thoughts as you're thinking your thoughts, or else you wouldn't pray like that. But some of my favorite passages are in Luke 12 about the creatures that God has made. Remember these, are not five sparrows sold for two farthings? Not one of them is forgotten before God? Not one sparrow? Now, I don't know why sparrows were sold for two cents. I, I don't know. You know, uh, you go to the Iowa State Fair, you buy everything on a stick. Maybe they walked around saying, sparrow on a stick, two, two, two farthings. I don't know why sold a sparrow, uh, you know, so, but, but they did. And yet, God notices every sparrow that falls to the ground, every sparrow that exists, he knows them. Then he says, but even the very hairs of your head are all numbered, which again, I often say, some of us are not much trouble to God, others are more. But he says then, fear not, therefore, you are more valuable than many sparrows. In other words, if God is that omniscient, and knows the number of hairs on a person's head and every person in the world and every person that's ever lived in the world? What does he know about you? What does he care about you? You think you're ever out of his care and ever out of his concern? Or in verse 24, consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feedeth them. Aren't you better than the fowls? <laughs> I think you are. God feeds them. Even when you forget to in your bird feeder, don't worry. God feeds them. And then, verse 27, consider the lilies how they grow. They toil not, they spin not. And yet I say unto you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed as one of these. You can't find something so beautiful as a wild flower growing in the grass, and yet that flower may grow up somewhere where no human eye will ever see it and die and go away, and God has pleasure in it. And God puts more beauty into that little wild flower that no one will ever see than the, than the cathedrals that man can make. And if that's true, if God so clothed the grass, which is Today in the field and tomorrow is cast into the oven. How much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? And so God will take care of you. The invisible things of God we understand, and this omniscience of God we understand by this. By him all things consist, Paul said in the book of Colossians, meaning all things are held together. Every atom, every molecule, everything that this world is made out of, God holds it together. Well, if he knows the hairs on your head, he knows every flower of every grass anywhere in the world, he knows every thought of the human being, no wonder he can make everything consist together. 
So he does. Now remember this as we leave this first point. We are made in the image and likeness of God, and no other creature is. The birds are not, and the animals are not. You and I are made in the image of God, so God becomes our standard. If he is holy, we should try to be holy. If he is truthful, we should try to be truthful. If he cannot lie, we should not lie. All of these things that God is in his attributes becomes uh, part of our goal. And God becomes our judge for the same reason. Because he is perfect in all of these and we are not. And that is why, as, as uh, Gordon began reading from verse 18, what is the subject of this paragraph? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. And how do we know that the wrath of God would come upon us? Because of these things we're talking about, because of the attributes of God. And that's why our verse ends with, so that they are without excuse. So remember that God is not only your God, your standard, but he is your judge as well. So the invisible things of God. But let's talk about for a minute the visible things, the things that is from the creation of the world, the things that are made as he tells us in this verse. God has revealed things in two ways, by the way, what theologians call special revelation and general revelation. You and I in the book of Romans are reading special revelation. God wrote this book. He gave us revelation in a way that no one else could ever have it. First of all, he became a man and revealed himself through Jesus Christ. Then he wrote a book like this and gave it to us, and that's special revelation. But then there's general revelation. As we look at the creation of the world, we understand something about God. Something about God is revealed to us. And that's what Romans 1.20 is, is uh, talking to us about. Or remember Psalm 19 again, the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament, the very sky, shows his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech. Night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them have they set a tabernacle for the sun, if you remember, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber rejoices as a strong man to run the race. There's nothing hid from the heat of the sun. Consider, this, consider the sun. Right now, if we turned off all the lights in this room, you could still see. You know why? Because the sun's up. If we turned off the heat, we wouldn't die because there's heat from the sun. And when the sun is up there, folks, you cannot escape the light of the sun. You cannot escape the heat of the sun. Oh, well, you can close yourself up in some uh, cubicle, I guess, that you make. But you know, you get the point. Just as the sunlight and the heat from the sun goes everywhere, so does the witness of God. It goes into all parts of the earth. You can't escape it. You can't get away from the fact, the things that God has made, and they are a testimony to him. Well, people ask, does God exist then? Well, the Bible says, look around you. Of course he exists. We call it the cosmological argument, that is, look at the cosmos, look at the world that he made. It all testifies to a creator, the teleological argument. Look at the perfection in everything. Look at the detail that God makes and then tell me that that's all by chance. No, this is a creator, a wise one. You remember when Paul and Barnabas were in Galatia and they healed a man. 
And uh, the, the heathen people there in Galatia in those days immediately thought, well, this is Zeus and Barnabas, you know, two mythological personages. Zeus and Barnabas, uh, or, or Zeus, not Barnabas, but Hermes. Zeus and Hermes have come down to us, and they're, they're among us. And so Paul rushes in among them and says, no, no, no. Uh, this isn't Zeus, and, and, and this isn't Hermes. It's just us. And he says, you have to understand, there is one God who has made everything. And he says in Acts 14, 17, he left not himself without witness in that he did good. He gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. You'll sit down to a, to a Sunday meal uh, a little later today, and God provided everything that made that food. He provided everything so that you could fill your hearts with food and gladness. And that's why you bow your head and say, thank you, Lord, for doing all of these things. These all give witness to him. Paul goes on to, to Athens, and he walks in. Here's the intelligentsia of the day. These are the brightest people, you know, the brightest bulbs on the block, so to speak. These are, these are the scholars and all. And yet they worship a thousand gods, and they have a sign that says to the unknown God, just in case we've forgotten somebody, here's, here's, uh, some, here's a sign to you too. And so Paul goes up to Mars Hill and says, God that made the world's. And all things that are therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands. And he was standing right in front of that huge Parthenon on top of the Acropolis that the Greeks made. And there wasn't anything so beautiful in the world as that. And here's Paul saying, God doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. And he, and he goes on and says, Neither is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. And he's standing in front of all of these places that they thought that their gods dwelled in. And so the visible things that we look at in the world give testimony to God. I hope you enjoy those things. I don't know about you. I, I love sunsets and sunrises, you know. And, and I like to see them both. I can see the sunrise a little easier because of the windows in our house than the sunset. Maybe you can see the sunset more than the sunrise. Don't you love the mountains? I mean, we don't have, we have the hills and the Ozark Hills, I guess, around here. But I've seen mountains all over the world. And you don't have to go much further than Colorado, Montana, or Alaska to see some beautiful mountains. And from airplanes, I've seen uh, mountains over Switzerland and mountains over uh, Germany and, and things like that, and they're beautiful things. And, and oceans. You love to go see the magnificent ocean, Pacific Ocean, the Atlantic Ocean. I got to spend a summer at the North Sea uh, in Scotland one, one summer. Beautiful, beautiful place. God created them all. Do you look at them and say, uh, I don't believe in a God. I don't believe in a creator. I don't know how you could do that. And I don't know about you, but I I love mornings, and uh, there's nothing like to me uh, standing on a river fishing in the morning when the sun comes up. I don't, you know, have your own beauty uh, in one way or another. But uh, the, the rivers that God created all over this world are, are wonderful. The, the Kinnick River up in Alaska near Palmer, where our kids are, comes out of a glacier. And you can stand there and look back up the river and watch it winding back up the mountain to this white glacier. You can see the glacier, and then you're standing fishing for salmon in the river. Is there anything prettier than that? God made it all and provided it for us all. Now, I told you some time ago about seeing the eagles 
up in Ontario, Canada, where I get to go each summer. What beautiful creatures there are. That, that eagle that, that left his, the tree and went against the wind all the way across the lake, never flapping his wings. And the wind was enough to make white caps in the water, and that eagle goes all the way across that lake against the wind and never flaps his wings. How does God make such a creature? And then fishing out in the lake on the boat with some guys, and that eagle dived down and took that fish off the water 20 feet from our boat. I've never seen anything so spectacular as that. Well, I'm going to read you a couple things, because I like to read not only creation magazines, but magazines about outdoor life and, and so forth. Consider the eagle. And as you think about these kinds of creatures, and think about the God who made them, each eagle has more than 7,000 feathers that weigh a mere 500 grams, about 20 ounces. The skeleton, structured from hollow bones, is half of that weight, just 5% of the animal's weight. The wings span to 8 feet and the bald eagle can sometimes reach up to 45 miles an hour just flying along. And when he's diving, he can dive at 100 miles an hour. God made that creature. Or go from that down to the little ant. You know, Solomon said, consider the ant, thou sluggard. A recent study on the structure and mechanics of the ant neck joint showed that the neck joint of the ant species called the Allegheny Mound Ant. If you see any of these guys, leave them alone. He can withstand up to approximately 5,000 times the ant's own weight, far exceeding what was ever thought before. 5,000 times your weight on the back of your neck. And that little ant can carry that kind of weight on him. Consider the hummingbird. When hovering, the wings beat at 50 to 80 flaps per second, even going up to 200 flaps per second. They utilize, a, and when they do it, they utilize a figure eight pattern with their wings uh, that is called treading air. You know, you might try to tread water. They tread air in which the wings flap backward and forward, gathering lift with both motions. And this is very unlike the up and down motion of most birds uh, that have wings. This unique ability to hover precisely in one position and fly backwards or take off vertically was not completely understood until recently. And when active, its heart rate is to a staggering 12,000 beats, or, or excuse me, 1,200 beats per minute, while the respiratory rate, uh, even at rest, is 250 breaths per minute. I'm going to talk about the human eye for a minute. Your eye that you see with, what, a, what a, a marvel of creation it is. The outer layer of cornea cells are on the front line between the eye and the hostile world of dirt, sand, and even your own eyelashes. These contaminants could not only cut the cornea, but could also abrade it so severely with blinking that blindness could result uh, and damage if it is left unattended. So, one smart way to make sure people don't ignore care for their eyes is to invest the outer layer of the cornea with so many sensory nerves that even small specks of dust are intensely painful. Corneas are likely the most pain-sensitive tissues in the body. 
with sensory innervations up to 400 times greater than that of the most skin of your body, and even a dozen times more sensitive than your uh, fingertips or your teeth, just to protect your eyes. And you know what? I, I got home last night and opened up one of those magazines, and I pulled out this article on spiders. <laughs> and, and I don't know if you can see it, but that is not a spider. That is something that a spider made that looks like a spider. Listen to this. In 2012, two U.S. biologists independently discovered an amazing behavior each in different species of spiders. The two spider species live 11,000 miles apart, one in the Amazon region of Peru, the other in the Philippines. Unbeknownst to uh, each other at the time, both scientists discovered spiders using forest debris like bark, leaves, moss, and so forth, create replicas of themselves in the middle of their webs. Here's a picture of it. They made this. It's not a real spider. A spider made it. Isn't that crazy? And it says the copies are often incredibly detailed complete with eight legs and the general layout of a spider body. And the only major differences in appearance, the dummies were made about 10 times larger than their creators. And the result was a rather realistic image of a giant spider that either represented a menacing appearance to the creatures that might have uh, dared to pick on the smaller spider or provided a, fast, a false target for undeterred predators that mistook the decoy for the real owner of the web. To add to the realism, listen to this, of the imitation spiders, it was found that the real spiders also caused the realistic decoys to move when predators were near by shaking their own webs. <laughs> Boo, he says, you know, as he shakes the web, I guess. Not only is this behavior fascinatingly complex, but it also seems unprecedented in the animal kingdom for no other creature at all is known to create a larger decoy of itself to escape predators. It, you, there's just no end, in other words, folks, to God's creation and what he made and the fantastic things about it. So when we think of all of these kinds of things, we have to say the invisible things of God are clearly seen by the things that are made. It must be a creator and it must be a wonderful creator. And in God's creation, there is death and terror and also beauty and blessing which is a testimony, again, to the biblical record of sin and the fall and the recreation that God makes. So don't uh, worry about the ugly things in the, in the world. Uh, take what God has made and realize why God made them. You know, as I told somebody the other day, if you enjoy sunrises or sunsets, remember that it takes clouds to form them. On a beautiful cloudless day with no problem in the sky, you don't have a beautiful sunrise or sunset. But if you have clouds, God reflects his glory off of those clouds. And so when troubles come into your world and trials come into your life, remember that's how God makes sunrises and sunsets from the clouds in your life. And so God said to Paul about the thorn in his flesh, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And remember that. 
All right, so you have the invisible things of God and the visible things that God made. But one last thing that he says here is we understand his eternal power and Godhead by these things. Let me say this expression, his eternal power and Godhead, seems plain enough in our English Bible, but it's actually a very rare expression in, even in the Scriptures. Because the word eternal here, though we find our English word eternal in many places, that word that is translated from only appears one other time in the New Testament. It means this type of eternal, and that's in Jude 1.6, where Jude writes, the angels which kept not their first estate but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains. The only other description that matches the eternal power of God is the eternal damnation of hell. The, the eternal place where God is going to put the fallen angels forever and ever and ever. And contrast that to the eternal power. That's what you see in God's creation. That's what is made manifest by the world that God made. The eternal power. And then the word Godhead is only used three times in Scripture. Once in Acts uh, uh, 1729, again on Mars Hill, for as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think of the Godhead as gold, silver, or stone graven by art and man's device. Don't think of the Godhead as something that can be made by our own hands. We see the eternal power and Godhead in what he has made. And that invisible God is what we can understand. And Paul call, or Peter, excuse me, in 2 Peter 1, 3, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And so his eternal power and Godhead is an amazing statement that Paul makes here using very special words to describe what we see in God's creation. Let me talk for a second again about his power and go back to that idea of the stars. Remember them again? Lift up your eyes, Isaiah says. Behold, who created these things that bringeth out their host by number, he knows how many there are, and calleth them all by names, by the greatness of his power. For he that is strong and not one faileth. He knows them. And so Psalm 147 says, He telleth the numbers of the stars. He calleth them all by their names. Great is the Lord and of great power. His understanding is infinite. Now, how many stars are there? Remember trying to figure that out, and I'm sure we don't know exactly. But one scientist recently estimated there are 10 trillion galaxies 10 trillion galaxies. I don't know how to number 10 trillion. We'd have to go to Congress and get the number from them because only they deal in numbers that large. But 10 trillion galaxies, and if we take our galaxy, which is one of those, which is the Milky Way galaxy, they estimate there are 100 billion stars in our galaxy. <laughs> and there are 10 trillion galaxies. And so this same scientist put that number together and came up with one dash, I'll spare you this, one with 24 zeros after it. One with 24 zeros. Somewhere in that number is how many stars. God knows everyone, knows where they are, calls them by their name, 
and created everyone. He's eternal power and Godhead. Another little expression that I come across often in the book of Nahum, because I like this verse, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm. And then he says, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. <laughs> think of that when you see the clouds. The clouds are the dust of his feet. And I think to myself, oh, really? Does God walk around on the earth and where he puts his foot down, clouds jump up from his feet, and uh, that's why we have clouds? No, you understand that the Bible has similes and metaphors and anthropomorphisms and all of these figures of speech. What does it mean the clouds are the dust of his feet? Because we know where clouds come from and the air currents and the moistures and, and, and all the rest. What does it mean by it? Doesn't it mean this? If you walk along outside on the dirt, let's say, you're walking along on the dirt, you don't notice, you might see your footprint, right? And if it's wet, you might splash or something like that. But normally, just stepping along on a dirt path or something, you don't notice anything, but you know that there's, there's little puffs of dirt that go off when you step on something? And there's invisible specks that you don't even see that, that uh, move when your foot goes down? Well, to God, the almighty, powerful God, the clouds that cover the earth are no more than the specks of dust that you don't even see when you walk along. In other words, he's contrasting the things that are so obvious to us on this earth are almost like nothing when it comes to the eternal power and Godhead. And let me remind you at the last about his Godhead because we know he means by that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amazing, isn't it, that from this world we ought to understand what God has done with us and that God, when he said, let us make man in our own image, is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I like that, il that illustration of the fish, you know, that we, you see on a bumper sticker somewhere, and sometimes you see the Greek word maybe in the middle of it, and it's ichthus because the, the, the Greek word for fish is ichthus. It's an ichthus. And yet the letters that spell ichthus are the iota, the chi, the theta, the upsilon, and the sigma. You know those from your college days, right? And those letters all are the first letters of these words, Jesus, Christ, God, Son, Savior. And it's true that in the first century, the Christians, because they were being persecuted and they had to be very careful about who they contacted and how they did, would use the symbol of a fish as kind of a secret password for I'm a believer too. Because I believe in Jesus Christ, God's Son and Savior, the ichthus, every letter of the word fish. I So I have it on my calling card, by the way, underneath my name, the, the, the letters ichthus, and I have it as Jesus Christ is God's Son and my Savior. I wonder if he is yours. The Godhead, praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord that we have a God who revealed himself and showed himself in his creation. We understand his eternal power and Godhead so that I am without excuse before him. I have an eternal soul that has to live somewhere forever. And there is a God who created me, and that's so obvious from the things around me. And therefore, I have to answer to that God. I have to give an account to that God. I am without excuse. And the whole earthly story could be summed up like this. God created. Man sinned. God loved. Christ came. 
salvation offered, and eternity is coming. And what will you do with God's Son? What will you do with the one who died for you and gave himself for you and has expressed in all of his creation how much he loves you, how much he knows about you, and how much he cares for you, and how that you will have to stand before this almighty God someday? I trust that you understand that and you know him as Savior. Stand with me, if you will, as you've heard uh, these words from Romans chapter 1. Maybe they spoke to your heart in many different ways, but we're going to sing a song in a minute and give the Lord opportunity to speak to our hearts and, and uh, stir us the way he wants. Let's pray. Father, as we think about the wonderful words of your scripture when they talk about these wonderful things that are made and how uh, it all shows your handiwork, Father, we praise you and thank you, and we sing praises to you because of what you have done and what you have made. And then, Father, we consider for a moment how much you know of us, not only the hairs on our head, but the thoughts of our heart. And you know that the thoughts of our heart are evil, even continually. And so, Father, without the Lord Jesus Christ, without his cleansing blood, we would be nothing. We would be guilty before you without excuse. But because you've loved us and given yourself for us, we can know you, this eternal power and Godhead through the Lord Jesus Christ. So I pray, Father, wherever this voice is heard, uh, there might be conviction about these things and a drawing of your spirit to salvation in Jesus Christ. Now bless us, Father, as we've heard these things and talked about them this morning. Speak to our hearts in ways that we should. Maybe it's, a, uh, it's uh, having to do with our own witness of you that we don't speak very much uh, of you and of your word and of your message as we should. Burden our hearts about that. Maybe we just don't appreciate and enjoy the things that you have made as we should, as they declare your glory. Our Father, maybe there's real conviction as we should be as you are, but we're not. And we need to confess these things before you and ask your forgiveness always. So speak to our hearts, do what you want with us this morning, and we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. As John comes and leads us in the song, our invitation.